0: Find uh, Daniel chapter 8 tonight
1: as we continue marching along in the book of Daniel. We've been in Daniel now for about 10 weeks. And of course, we're in the more difficult section. And with chapter 8, the book of Daniel goes back to Hebrew once again. In chapter 2, it went to Aramaic. And uh, now in chapter 8, it goes back to Hebrew. Uh, Let's pick up reading in verse 1, and I want to talk to you tonight on the subject matter Little Big Mouth. Little Big Mouth. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me at first. In the vision, I was looking and saw myself in Susa, the capital, in the province of Elam, and I was by the river Ulaan. I looked up and saw a ram standing beside the river. It had two horns. Both horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer uh, longer one came up second. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. All beasts were powerless to withstand it, and no one could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became strong. As I was watching, a male goat appeared from the west, coming across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a horn between its eyes. It came toward the ram with the two horns that I had seen standing beside the river, and it ran at it with savage force. I saw it approaching the ram. It was enraged against it and struck the ram, breaking its two horns. The ram did not have power to withstand it. It threw the ram down to the ground and trampled upon it, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from its power. Then the male goat grew exceedingly great, but at the height of its power the great horn was broken, and in its place there came up four prominent horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, a little one, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the host of heaven. It threw down to the earth some of the host and some of the stars and trampled on them. Even against the prince of the host, it acted arrogantly. It took the regular burnt offering away from him and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. Because of wickedness, the host was given over to it together with the regular burnt offering It cast truth to the ground and kept prospering in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one that spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled? And he answered him, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I tried to understand it. Then someone appeared standing before me, having the appearance of a man, and I heard a human voice uh, by the uh, Uli calling, Gabriel, help this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I became frightened and fell prostrate. Uh, I became frightened and fell prostrate, but he said to me, Understand, O mortal, that the vision is for the time of the end. As he was speaking to me, I fell into a trance, face to the ground. Then he touched me and set me on my feet. He said, Listen, and I will tell you what will take place later in the period of wrath, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, These are the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between its eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. At the end of their rule, when the transgressions have reached their full measure, a king of bold countenance shall arise, skilled in intrigue. He shall grow strong in power, shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does. He shall destroy the powerful and the people of the holy ones. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall be great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and shall even rise up against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken and not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. As for you, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was dismayed by the vision and did not understand it. Now folks, as we saw last week, uh, Daniel 7 gives us a lot more information about the four kingdoms that we began to look at back in chapter 2. So again, Daniel 7 is more detailed. Now, in chapter 8 of Daniel, we're going to be given a great deal of detail related to the second and the third kingdoms. Now, you'll remember that animals have been used to describe these kingdoms. A lion was used to describe Babylon. A bear, the Medo-Persian empire. A leopard was used to describe Greece. And then a horrible beast was used to describe Rome. You know, sometimes people stay away from the Bible saying that it contains strange images. And certainly, I guess you could say in Daniel and in Revelation, there are some pretty strange images that we do see. But folks, we've got to remind ourselves that we do the very same thing. We use animals to speak of people, right? He's wise as a owl. She's got the memory of an elephant. If someone is scared, we call them a a chicken. If somebody is stubborn, we say they're stubborn as a mule. <laughs> so we use animals the same way, right? To describe people. And uh, so if we'll just stay with the imagery in Daniel, we'll see that it's really not that difficult. Now in fact, in chapter 8, we're going to see that the animals and the kingdoms that they represent are actually interpreted for us. We're, we're going to be told what each animal, what kingdom each animal stands for. And so we don't even have to guess about it. We're we're told in the interpretation that we're going to see later on. Now, as we look at chapter 8, we know that this is the second vision that Daniel has received. Chapter 7 was the first. Chapter 8 is the second. And both of these visions fall between the historical section of Daniel 4 through 5. Chapter 7, that vision took place in the first year of Belshazzar, and chapter 8's vision takes place in the third year of Belshazzar. Now, again, all this means is that we need to understand that while the events, the historical events of Daniel chapters one through six are going on. The visions of chapters seven through twelve are going on. You can lay these visions right on, in seven through twelve, right on top of the historical chapters in uh, being chapters one through six. Now the vision in chapter eight can be dated to about five fifty one or five fifty BC. 12 years before the feast of Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. And so while the first empire is still in force, the Babylonian Empire, remember it was the head of gold, or the lion with the eagle's wings, Daniel is allowed to see into the future, into the second and third empires. Now, chapter 8 can be divided in three ways. First of all, the vision. We're going to talk about the vision in verses 1 to 14, the interpretation of the vision in verses 15 to 26, and then the effect that it had on Daniel in verse 27. Uh, So I want you to look at those uh, first uh, 14 verses again. And as you look at let me point out, what you're going to see in these verses is that although each kingdom is fierce and powerful in its own right, it's also fragile and temporary. Let me say that again. Each kingdom is fierce and powerful in its own right. But while it's fierce and powerful, it's also fragile and temporary. God has all the kingdoms of the world on a leash and not one of them will last. Even powerful kingdoms have some fragile aspects to them and they can end quickly, right? Think of all the institutions of earth. They're that way, right? Governments, nations, nations. Great universities, uh, places that were once great universities, something seemed to happen quickly, and now it's just a shell of what it used to be. Businesses in the world, corporations, once powerful, can go bankrupt overnight. Churches, strong churches, there can be fragile points to them. I mean, think of somebody like where where, uh, Charles Spurgeon preached. In the mid 1800s, uh, he preached to 10,000 in person every week in a day when most churches were just small little chapels. It was unheard of. And yet he was preaching to 10,000 a week, and then his sermons were being transcribed uh, 25,000 copies. So 35,000. Uh, sermons a week, or 35,000 copies of his sermon every week, whether in person or in writing. And yet, you travel to that church today in England, and it's just a shell of what it used to be. So again, whatever it is in the world, uh, kingdoms, governments, corporations, universities, churches, things can seem very strong and very lasting. But yet, they can also be very fragile and temporary, right? And we've said that's what we see in all of these kingdoms that Daniel is being allowed to see. They look fierce. They look powerful. And at the time, they were But in time, another more powerful kingdom came along and defeated them. And that new kingdom rose to power, and it looked like nobody could defeat it. But sure enough, somebody else came along. I mean, that's how this world is. And there's a lesson in that for us, right? The things of this world, the things of this earth are not permanent. And that's why we need to have our eyes on God's kingdom. Because his kingdom, as we saw in chapter 2, comes and crushes all others, and it lasts eternally. Daniel also learns here that the end is a long way off for him. You know, many people speak as though the end is here. You know, it might happen tomorrow. But the truth of the matter is, at least from Daniel's vantage point, the end would be a long ways off. Here he is in the Babylonian kingdom. And after him, there's going to be the Medo-Persian and then the Greeks and then the Romans. So Daniel's seeing that it's going to be a long time what he's being told about. And he's not going to live to witness it all. So again, he's being shown these powerful kingdoms are fragile at the same time. And the end is a long ways off. Well, with that said, let me go over first of all the vision. The vision from verses 1 to 14. Now, look at verse 2. In the vision I was looking and I saw myself in Susa, the capital, in the province of Elam, and I was by the river U- Ulai. Daniel finds himself uh, projected in a vision to a town that was little known at that time and, and uh, wouldn't be great for a number of years, but eventually it was destined to be the capital of the next kingdom, the Persian kingdom, and it would be the home of Esther, Queen Esther, and it would be the city from which Nehemiah came from to go back to Jerusalem. And so where Daniel is projected forward into that city, it might not have meant much to anybody at at Daniel's time, but it's a city that's going to be great in the Persian kingdom. Uh, If you want to know where it is, it's about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf, uh, sort of near the modern day country of Kuwait. Uh, And again, later it would become the capital of the Persian Empire. Now, We've read the vision, and I'm not going to spend a great deal of time here because verses 15 to 26 are going to interpret it for us, and so that's where we're going to spend our time. But suffice it to say now that in the vision, we have the introduction of more animals. We see a ram with two horns in verses 3 and 4, and then a male goat in verse 5. And again, fortunately, we don't have to speculate any here about what these stand for. It's the same as it was in chapter 2 with the head of gold. Likewise, verse 20 of chapter 8 tells us that the ram was Medo-Persia, and verse 21 tells us that the goat was Greece. And so let's move on and jump into secondly the interpretation. Look at verse 15. He says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I tried to understand it. Then someone appeared standing before me, having the appearance of a man. And I heard a human voice by the Ulai calling, Gabriel, help this man to understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I became frightened and felt prostrate. But he said to me, understand, O oh mortal, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, I go along with those commentators who feel like Christ is the one being referred to here. The one with the human voice calling to Gabriel. Uh, He tells Gabriel to interpret this vision for Daniel. Now, there's only three angels by name in the Bible. One of them being Gabriel. Who's the other one?
0: Michael.
1: Michael, Who's another one? Lucifer. It would seem here that it is Christ commanding the angel Gabriel to interpret this vision for Daniel. And then look at verse 17 and following. I just read it, so verse 18. As he was speaking to me, I fell into a trance, face to the ground. Then he touched me and set me on my feet. He said, listen, and I will tell you what will take place in the period of wrath. For it refers to the appointed time at the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Now, we're told here the identity, medo persia I'm not going to give you a history lesson here, but if you do a little bit of research on the Medes and the Persians, uh, you'll find out that these verses describe exactly what they did. They went westward and they, they overtook Babylon and Mesopotamia and Syria and Asia Minor. They went northward. They took Colchis, uh, Armenia, Iberia, and the regions around the Caspian Sea. Then they went southward. They seized Palestine and Egypt and Libya in Ethiopia, they seize these countries. Now, the goat we're told represents the Greek Empire, and who would the single horn represent? Alexander,
0: Alexander,
1: Alexander the Great. You go back to verse four, and what does it say about the movement of this goat? Didn't even touch the ground. What's the implication there? Moved with great speed. And that's exactly what Alexander and his uh, armies did. The Greek empire grew to world domination under the leadership of Alexander the Great. Now he was the son of Philip, king of Macedon. When Alexander was a boy, his father enlisted Plato's disciple Aristotle to be Alexander's personal tutor. You recognize those names, right? Okay. Philip always told Alexander that he would be a great leader one day. Now, Alexander didn't love his father as much as he loved his mother, Olympias. In fact, some historians say that Alexander grew up with an anger towards his father because of his father's indiscretions against his mother. At age 18, Alexander was leading armies already into battle. When he was 20, his father was murdered, some say by a plot schemed by Alexander's mother, and Alexander became the ruler of the Greeks. Now his decisive battle against the Persians took place near uh, modern Syria at the Battle of Issus, which Alexander won in 333 BC when he was just 23 years old. Within the next 10 years, he would conquer the entire world from Italy to Egypt to modern Pakistan. Now, after his victory at uh, Issus in 333, Alexander headed south toward Egypt and he planned to capture Jerusalem. But listen at the description I've given you by Josephus. I think I put that in your notes. Josephus, the Jewish historian, shares a fascinating story. He says that as Alexander and his army approached Jerusalem, they were planning on destroying the city. Uh, remember, it had just been rebuilt about 100 years earlier by Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, there was only the basic building of the second temple constructed by Zerubbabel. Josephus says that while Alexander was considering destroying the city, the high priest went out to him with a scroll of Daniel 8 and explained to him that he and his army were destined by God to conquer the Persians. And the account that Josephus gives says that Alexander was so impressed by this that instead of destroying the city, he would bypass it and go on down to Egypt. Well, in verse 22 of Daniel 8, Alexander had made no plans for the continuation of his kingdom. He dies suddenly, at a very young age, his early 30s. He had children, but supposedly he didn't think very much of his children. And so he had never designated an heir. And so when he died, suddenly there was a conflict that ensued between his leading generals and they finally arrived at the solution of simply dividing his kingdom four ways. Now from secular history, we know who these four generals were. There's Cassander, and he would take the area of Macedonia and Greece, then there was Lysimachus, he would take Thrace and Western Asia Minor. And then there's uh, Ptolemy, he would take Egypt and Northern Africa and Palestine. And then Seleucus, he would take middle, uh, the Middle East all the way to India. Now folks, this is just history to us. We know this because of the secular history books. But I want you to remember, Daniel is being shown this and Daniel is prophesying all this 300 years before it even took place. Now, we come to the focus of the chapter. Verses 8 to 14. And then the interpretation in 23 to 26. Uh, Look at 23 to 26. At the end of their rule, we're, we're told that that none of his generals had the same power as Alexander, at the end of their rule, when the transgressions have reached their full measure, a king of bold countenance shall arise, skilled in intrigue. He shall grow strong in power, shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does." He shall destroy the powerful and the people of the holy ones. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall be great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and shall even rise up against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken and not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. As for you, seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Now most scholars agree that this individual in these verses is the 8th king in the dynasty of the Seleucids, which was centered in the area of modern-day Syria. He reigned over the Seleucid dynasty from 175 B.C. down to 164 B.C. Do you know what his name is? Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV Epiphanes. His capital city was Antioch, which was named for him. Now, what's he remembered mostly for doing? He slaughtered a pig on the Jewish altar. Exactly. He
0: desecrated the temple and God himself. Yes,
1: yes. His tyrannical oppression against the Jews from
0: 171
1: BC to 165 BC. Uh, the details of his atrocities against the Jews is written in a book called First Maccabees. Now listen to some out of First Maccabees chapter 1. First Maccabees chapter 1. Uh, I'll begin at verse 41. It says, The king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many, even from Israel, gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed the idols and profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals and to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, and whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. In such words he wrote to his whole kingdom. He appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice town by town. Many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, joined them and they did evil in the land. They drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. Now on the 15th day of Chislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them, and they hung the infants from their mothers' necks. This was the type of leader that came in over the Jewish people and the time between the Old and the New Testament. He hated the Jews, and they hated him. He demanded that the people, as they would see him approaching, they would cry out, Epiphanes, whenever he would go by. And this means Antiochus the Magnificent or Antiochus the Glorious. Coins from that era have been found bearing his likeness with the Greek phrase, Theos, Epiphanes, God manifest on the crown. Uh, on the coin. But when he would pass the Jews, instead of them crying out Antiochus Epiphanes, they would cry out Antiochus Epimenes. And it was a play on words. Instead of saying Antiochus the Magnificent, what they were saying is Antiochus the Idiot or the (laughs) Madman. And so when they would cry out that chant when he had passed by, that only enraged him all the more. Uh, He despised everything Jewish. He tried to uh, uh, erase all of their Jewish laws and ways and customs and festivals and sacred days and all of their sacred places. He tried to desecrate them. Uh, He tried to get them to adopt Greek ways. he built a gymnasium outside of Jerusalem where Jewish young men could take part in the Greek athletic games and those games were to be played in the nude which would which would kind of be an insult in the face of Hebrew morals. Uh, in one attack on Jerusalem, 40,000 people were killed and 10,000 were carried into captivity. He put an end to the daily sacrifices at the temple. He looted the temple of all of its treasures. He carried off the golden altar of incense and the golden lampstand. As you just heard me read a moment ago, he forbade circumcision. He outlawed the observance of the Sabbath. And he made it a criminal offense for anybody to have a copy of the scriptures. In the words of Daniel 8, He threw truth to the ground. The male babies that were circumcised, he would have them put to death. And if he heard about a mother who circumcised her son on the eighth day according to the law, he would kill the little baby boy, hang it around its mother's neck for its body to decompose and she had to wear it. And then finally, he would lead her to the edge of a cliff And with the baby around her neck, he would throw her over so that she would die too. That's the kind of guy this was. Uh, He took the seven sons of one Jewish mother and fried them to death on a large metal pan while making the mother watch. And then he had her eyes gouged out so that would be the last thing that she saw. And of course, the vilest thing that he did from a Jewish standpoint of view was that he set up an image of Zeus in the Jewish temple and he ordered that they worship the image and then he personally sacrificed a pig on the altar and sprinkled the blood of the pig around the temple thus defiling the entire temple. No wonder Daniel 8.13 refers to this as what? What? What's it say of this? Abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation. That means it was so awful to the Jews it was such an abomination to the Jews they simply deserted the temple until it could be reconsecrated at a later period in time. Now look back at verses 13 and 14 again. <clears throat> then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one that spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled? And he answered him, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, there's some question about the 2,300 days. The question in verse 13 asks, how long will the sacrifices be taken away? And the answer in verse 14 is 2,300 mornings and evenings. Now, some take... The 2,300 as referring to the morning and the evening sacrifices, because remember, there were both. There were morning and evening sacrifices. And so if you take 2,300, divide by two, you get 1,150 actual days or a little over three years. Jewish history does record that the offering was taken away for a period of a little over three years. Now, others take the 2,300 mornings and evenings uh, referred to in verse 14 as days. So you have 2,300 days. When you look at the time that Antiochus persecuted the Jews, you get roughly 2,300 days. He persecuted them from 170 B.C. down to 164 B.C. Uh, Dr. John Walver, also Ralph Davis, prefers this explanation that explains the seven-year period that the Jewish people were persecuted, persecuted the most under Antiochus, ending with his death. As Walver goes on to say... Verses 1 through 14 can safely be said to have been fulfilled completely in history with the period which ended in the death of Antiochus Epiphanes. He says that the interpreter needs to look no further and not to try to assign anything else future to these first 14 verses. Uh, They have been completely fulfilled. Now, there may be something else we're intended to see in the 2300 mornings and evenings or days. It's limited. It's days. In other words, the trouble that God's people sometimes have to endure on the face of the earth is measured in days. In the scope of things, it's brief. And for that, we can be grateful. It may not seem to be brief for those going through it, for those who even lose their lives, but in the big scope of history, we're being told it's days. It's a limited amount of time. Whatever trouble God's people have to go through, it's limited. Now, for the end of Antiochus, finally... Judas Maccabees and his sons rose up in revolt and led the people of Israel to retake Jerusalem, cleanse the temple, and restore the offerings. When Antiochus heard about this, he began his journey back to Jerusalem, but his chariot crashed. And he was seriously wounded. Now, while he was recovering he was struck with a bowel disease, an infection, and infection, and people say he died a horrible death, not at the hands of men, but at the hands of God. Just like Daniel 8 refers to here. God brought his terrible reign to an end. According to Jewish tradition, when Judas Maccabees Maccabees, uh, went back to cleanse the temple, he wanted to light the lamps in the temple. And the ceremony to reconsecrate the temple required eight days. But he only had enough to light the lamps, enough oil to light the lamps for the first day. But tradition says the oil lasted eight days. The rededication took place on December the 14th, 164 BC. And in celebration of that miraculous reconsecration of the temple, the Jews still celebrate a holiday down to the present. And what is it?
0: Hanukkah,
1: Hanukkah. exactly. They still celebrate when the temple was rededicated and reconsecrated after Antiochus, was put to death, or died. Now, what do we do with verses 23 to 26 again? Uh, While some of this refers to Antiochus, many interpreters point out that some aspects don't. They think it refers also to a future Antiochus-type figure. Who would that be? The Antichrist. That he will be an Antiochus-like figure. That he will oppose all things holy. Remember, Antiochus set up an image in the temple and created the abomination of desolation. And Jesus, more than a century after Antiochus, told his disciples concerning the end of time that is yet future, that there will be yet another abomination that causes desolation. Jesus was referring to a past event. But he was also pointing to a future event as well. That a coming future event would be like what the Jewish people knew about in their history with Antiochus. In the Olivet Discourse, he talks about another abomination that causes desolation. Now, some interpreters say Jesus was referring to the Romans in 70 AD, how they came in, desecrated the temple, set up idols in it again, then destroyed it. Other interpreters say, well, it might have been that, but also Jesus was speaking of something yet future for us today. And those who say it's yet future for even us today, many of them believe the temple will be rebuilt. There'll be a third temple. And it's that third temple that will be desecrated. Now, I tend to disagree with those folks, but it's possible. But at any rate, temple or no temple, the Antichrist is going to be so intoxicated on the wine of the world power that he's going to finally stand up against the prince of princes, Jesus Christ, and he'll be broken without human means. And Revelation 19 points out what's going to happen. When Jesus comes back, the Antichrist and all of those who follow him, they are going to be shattered to pieces. They're going to be destroyed and they're going to be assigned to the lake of fire. What's the point? All of these kingdoms of the world, some of them wicked and have wicked rulers, that think they are even a higher authority than God Himself. And what have they all learned? The day of their end comes. They're not as powerful as they think they are. And there's a reckoning day for it. And all the kingdoms of this age, all the governments and powers that think they're so great nobody can ever deal with them, guess what? One of these days, all the kingdoms of the earth are going to come crashing down. There's only one kingdom that lasts. And that's the kingdom where Jesus reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Amen. And so as God's people, we need to do a couple of things. We need to make sure that our hope and trust is not in the things of this world. John in 1 John 2 says, love not the world nor the things of the world. For if if any man loves the world and the things in the world, um, the love of God is not in him. And the things of this world and the world itself are going to pass away. This world is not where your ultimate hope lies. If it is, you're trusting in something that is not going to last. It's going to be destroyed and you're going to be destroyed along with what you put your trust in if your trust is in the things of this world. So if you're putting your eggs in the basket of this world, you're putting your eggs in the wrong basket. But another lesson here too is we do have to go through tough times on this earth because we live in a fallen world and as part of living in a fallen world, we face people in charge who are wicked. Some people who are wicked. And they think they have the authority to say whatever's got to be done. And if you and I don't go along with it, we live by Christian convictions, we may have to suffer. And people all over the world today are suffering greatly. We're not that much in America, we've been very fortunate. But there are places in this world where Christians are suffering horribly at the hands of rogue governments. I mentioned last week that there were more people, more Christians put to death in the 20th century for the sake of the gospel than in all previous 19 centuries put together. See, we don't even see much of that in the West. We think it's not going on. And it is going on. There are countries in this world where our Christian brothers and sisters are suffering horribly. Tonight as we're gathered in here, nice building, nice campus, peaceful city. They're hiding behind closed doors, hoping they won't be discovered couple of years ago when Robbie and I went to Cameroon, Africa and Ivadi went as my translator I was going to be teaching and it's an area that speaks French and that's his native language because he was from the Congo. While we were there at the camp that week there were some Nigerian pastors and they were getting urgent calls from their wives that uh, different groups like ISIS and like Boko Haram were coming into their villages and they told us about times previous they'd come into their villages and they would have to hide out uh, in their homes behind locked doors with all lights out and one gentleman said all he and his wife and small children had to eat for three weeks was water and crackers. And his wife had called again to say they were active and he was concerned as he was hundreds of miles away was she and the kids, were they going to be safe? Were they going to be able to hide out and remain in safety? Apparently they were safe. We didn't hear any more that week. But I'm just saying, places of the world where Christians suffer. It could be sometime that it'll be our turn in the West. And again, what we need to see from all of this even if God allows it, it's temporary. There's a point in time at which God says enough, and then His people get a break. Many die, it. but again, it shows us that our hope and our trust is not here. There's worse things that could happen to you and me than dying for the sake of the gospel. Do any of us want to die for the sake of the gospel? No. None of us want to have to die. But there would be worse things that could happen to us than dying for the sake of the gospel. Right?
0: And He is always with us. Going through he's always whatever wins.
1: we go Yes. Yeah. That's the promise. Yeah. Cool. Some Christians in the world think it rather odd that we in the West are thinking that we're not going to have a turn at going through tribulation. Where's your hope? Where's your hope? All kingdoms of this earth will come crashing down. There are bad leaders out there. There's coming one yet to be, worst of all. And who knows what he's going to do. But our hope is in the one who's the king of kings. Some lessons I want to cover before we close tonight when you look at verse 27 look at verse 27 he says so I Daniel was overcome and lay sick for some days then I arose and went about the king's business but I was dismayed by the vision and did not understand it lesson number one the study of prophecy should never turn you into a prophecy junkie where we get so involved in it that the world around us is forgotten. In Acts 1, that's what the disciples wanted to do. Remember? Lord, are you at that time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And how did Jesus respond? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. but you shall be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will witness of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost ends of the earth. Right? They wanted to get off on just thinking about the end. When's it going to happen? What's it going to be like? Are you going to do it then? And Jesus says, Guys, you don't worry about that. That's in the Father's hands when it happens. But for you now, be against, uh, be be about the king's business, and be his witnesses. That's what our function is now as the church. God tells us enough that to, I guess, to satisfy our curiosity a little bit, and let us know how we ought to prepare ourselves for coming horrible days. But he doesn't want us just to become prophecy junkies to where it's all we talk about, end time stuff. Is it going to happen this way? Is A, B, C, D, E, F going to happen? Or is it going to be A, C, F, B, D? You know, what order is that? What we need to worry about is being about the master's business. That's where our focus is to be. Daniel, after just being told all of this that he's just been told about, notice what he does. I arose and went about the king's business. A second takeaway. Pray that we will be discerning about the times. Lesson number three. God's people have always had enemies. Satan cannot attack God directly and so he has often come after God's children. And then lastly, human history will become far worse
0: before the Lord intervenes.